Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Introducing our new series of Justice, where we will be exploring what impact the physical environment can have on those who have experienced trauma. With me, prison philanthropist, and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I explore prison design with Yvonne Dukes, Professor of Criminology at the University of Bath. Yvonne's research area is prison architecture and design, and she has consulted on prison design projects around the world, including the new women's prison in Limerick, Ireland. Yvonne reflects on the process of working on this project and speaks more broadly about the tension between designing prisons for women and advocating for less women in prison. I'm Yvonne Dukes. I'm Professor of Criminology at the University of Bath. And my research area is uh, prison architecture and design. So I've been researching that for about 15 years now, um, published quite extensively in that area. And I also run a creative writing company called Freedom to Write with Andy West. And we teach creative writing to all sorts of people, um, but including students in prison. Okay, you've worked all over the world, haven't you? Sort of Ireland, Australia, Norway, Denmark, New Zealand, I think. Yeah. And particularly it's sort of within the prison context, isn't it, your work? Because, you know, we've done a podcast about looking at the community. So just to be clear, you're much more kind of about the prison itself. I am. I have diversified a little bit. So uh, I've worked with Oasis Restore, for example, um, advising them on the new secure school in Kent. But the vast majority of my work is in prisons. And uh, I've done a lot of research over my entire career, so nearly 25 years, I think now, various aspects of imprisonment. But I've been specifically researching prison design for about the last 15 years. And I'm quite often engaged as a consultant. So I helped to design prisons in Ireland and New Zealand, for example. And I've also had input into the design of prisons in other countries like Australia. And I've done research in places like uh, Norway, Denmark, Japan. So yeah, quite, quite broad experience. Also in England and Wales with the Ministry of Justice, uh, I've done a little bit of work as well. So can you tell me about Limerick Prison? Um, I did visit the prison in January of this year, 2023, and it was really unbelievable. Could you tell me a bit about what your brief was and maybe some of the challenges that I'm sure you faced along the way? Yeah, it sort of warms my heart to hear you say that, Edwina, because you visited Limerick before I did and you were kind enough to send me an email telling me about it and and telling me about your response to it. So I was quite excited about it all. 
But I think I clearly have a different, slightly different perspective because I was so immersed in it from the start. So what happened was that um, I gave a keynote lecture uh, at a conference in Melbourne in 2015. And at that keynote, there happened to be the then Director General of the Irish Prison Service. Uh, and they'd started designing a new prison for women uh, in Limerick. And their plans at that time were, by their own admission, highly prescriptive and driven by engineering and security concerns. So when the DG heard my presentation, which was all about building more humane, you know, radically different uh, prisons, especially for women and children, the Irish Prison Service basically just tore up the sheet of paper and started again. And they they hired me to act as a consultant through the whole process. So the first thing that I did was um, I persuaded them to hold a design competition, as is more common in, or was more common certainly at that time, in parts of Northern Europe. And there was no template to work to. You know, the, the architects could basically come up with whatever they wanted. And I gave them a number of presentations based on my research. You know, the, the prison service were incredibly generous and trusting of me. They allowed me to really input my ideas and my research findings into the whole project. You know, I, I had a hand in, in writing the brief and I came up with a list of questions that I wanted the architects to think about. And I gave them lots of exemplar designs of, of prisons, some built and some not built, that I thought were really good models and uh, and they they went away and and came up with their designs and it was quite a long process so halfway through the process they came back to us with their interim designs there were four competing uh, consortia involved and they came back to us with their sort of interim designs and we were able to give them feedback and tell them where they were going wrong and what they'd got right. And then they went away again and came back at the end and presented uh, again their, their sort of final designs and, and a, a team of about 10 of us decided who was the winner, as it were. How long did that process take? The best part of a year. I think the, the final decision was made in 2018, February 2018. Right. And then sort of, you know, maybe skip to you know, the build process is always painful and takes a long time, but it is now there. Is it open? Are women in it? Do you know? I'm not sure. It's it's either just open or it's just about to open any day now, but I have a feeling that it, that it is already open. Uh, I visited at the beginning of July and it was completely finished then. They'd already taken some of the women from the old Limerick prison over there. And that's um, very sort of old Victorian, right? Can you describe a bit about the old one compared to the new one. Yeah, they are worlds apart. The old one, uh, it's I think it's the second oldest working prison in Europe. It was built between 1815 and 1821. It's essentially a men's prison with a wing devoted to, to women. It's grim. Uh, it's a horrible, dark, dank, vermin-infested <laughs> prison. And the, the cells are like catacombs they're like medieval dungeons you know with sort of curved ceilings and it's overcrowded at the moment so when I visited the new limerick in July I was told that the old limerick currently has three women per cell with with two of them sleeping on the floor so everything about it is horrible it must be a horrible place to work as well so the new limerick by contrast is light and bright it feels pretty non-institutional 
they took a lot of design cues that I gave them from Maggie's Cancer Care Centres. And Maggie's centres are all about an architecture of hope. So one of the things that I tried to encourage the architects of Limerick to think about was what an architecture of hope would look like for people in prison. And they really took that on board. I think it's quite difficult for professional architects to understand concepts like trauma-informed because they don't have the evidence base, you know, they don't have the the sort of knowledge um, behind that, why it works. But they do understand concepts like hope and optimism and aspiration. And yeah, they, they really got on board with that. So I felt that the new Limerick almost met its brief, but I have to admit that I was a bit disappointed. I think COVID and the delays to the build caused by COVID possibly allowed dissenting voices to be raised uh, about some issues. So one of the the senior members of the project team from the prison service said to me during the build that if they got it 80% over the line, that would be massive. You know, that would be radical for the Irish prison service. And they were all completely on board, right? They sound like they were really sort of fighting to get this done. And, you know, the people in the prison who I also met, they seemed very forward thinking and positive. They are. And they're rightly proud of the the prison that, that has been built. But I think for me, it did get 80% over the line. And there are things about it which I can talk about, which are are quite revolutionary. You know, there were some aspects of it that, as you say, I thought were nicer, you know, the best sort of examples of any prison that I've ever been in anywhere in the world. I think that the bedrooms in particular are exemplary. But the 20% that it it falls short on, I, I thought was quite significant. So, one example is the doors on on the, the the cells, the bedrooms were were supposed to be timber, and they were you know made of wood and painted nice pastel colours in the architect's renders. That's that's the scenario. So I was surprised and shocked when I turned up at the prison, and the first thing that hit me in the face was metal doors on on all the bedrooms, which are painted that sort of hospital green colour. And that really compromises the non-institutional feel of the building, I think. It makes it feel like a prison. And women don't need metal doors. I mean, they just don't. I don't know why that decision was made. It feels like a a knee-jerk reaction to a security problem that doesn't exist. And was it that or was it the fact that it might have been cost and obviously timber went up a lot? You know, I'm just drawing off some of the challenges that we faced and and then the delays of material coming, or do you think it was a security decision? In general, steel doors cost a lot more than timber doors. I don't know whether Brexit and COVID and and all of that could have made that much of a difference uh, to the price of wood. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm guessing that the reason was security uh, from you know from the sort of conversations that I had and, and overheard while I was there and that kind of thing. I, th- I think it was probably security and just doing what they've always done and what they know, probably that as much as anything. And then the other really sort of big thing that I thought could have been done better was the gardens, um, the courtyard in the middle. I always said that that prison, the success of it as a design, would stand or fall on that green space. In the architect's renders, it was a very lush, lushly planted space with mature trees, and it felt like a, a really nice garden 
This was one of the areas that I suspected that costs would be cut. And what they've ended up with is something, it's nice, it's pleasant, but the trees are saplings. I know they'll grow eventually, but it feels a bit sparse in the planting. That was another disappointment to me. And things like in the original architect's renders, there were Juliet balconies on the upstairs windows. There were patio doors leading out to the outside space downstairs. All those were vetoed for security reasons. I think my expectation was that the prison would feel very non-prison-like. It would feel much more like Hope Street, actually. So much more domestic in feel. And The reason I was there was to take part in a documentary that was being filmed, uh, which is called This is a Prison. And I ended up looking around me and thinking, actually, yeah, this this is a prison. You know, it it could have looked a lot less like a prison. But, but, you know, having said that, I'm a a bit (laughs) of a sort of doom monger about these things. It was just because I had such high expectations for it and, and such aspirations. As someone who's designed it, it's impossible, and I felt this at Hope Street, to not walk around and see the faults or where yeah. it wasn't quite up to what you thought in your mind. Whereas I walked in, having gone from the old part of Limerick it, onto this, uh, onto the new, the new place, and um, I was immediately struck by the light, the shape of the upper landing, which is like a circle. And I remember very clearly the artwork, which I thought was amazing. And I remember talking to Karen McCaffrey, the Director General of the Prison Service, who was there, and and I said, "Wow, you know this artwork here. It was um, like a woman painted on lots of separate plates, and the plates were on the wall, which is really really cool." And I was like, "Wow, how how did that get past security?" And she said, "You know, it's really important. Of course, something might happen, but it might not. And the chances are, if you've got nice things around, people aren't going to want to trash their environment. And you know what? We have to try." I was really energised by that. No, we're going to be brave enough to try and we're not just going to subscribe to the sort of computer says no. But, you know, the colour that came at you with the light at the same time was really amazing. Yeah, and again, you know, they took the cues from the Maggie Centre's images that I showed them. So that big oval skylight is amazing. I mean, the, the light absolutely floods into the accommodation unit. And then you've got that curved staircase with with the curved banister going up and you know they really again the architects completely took on board what I told them about the aesthetics of of these environments and the fact that curves are much more aesthetically pleasing to the human eye also they're much they are much safer than lots of long straight corridors with with sharp corners where you you know you can't see uh, who's coming around the corner and you know bullying and various types of abuse can happen in those sort of corners it's a very beautiful environment in in many ways. And actually, I think the bedrooms, you know, the the quality of finish. So the bed is encased in a really good quality laminate, uh, which looks like wood, and it matches the shelving. You know, they've got shelves for books um, and the the clothes storage. The bathroom fittings are the highest quality I've, I've ever seen. There are some really ingenious little touches. So uh, I don't know if you noticed, but all the bedrooms have a section of the wall, which is covered in blackboard paint. And the women will be given chalk, I'm, I'm assured, so that they can write poetry or shopping lists or you know whatever they like on the walls. 
And on the the windows, there's a a long ventilation panel. There are all sorts of ways that women can control the light and the, um, the air coming into their bedrooms. But on the back of the ventilation panel is a full-length mirror. And it's, it's proper glass, it's proper mirror, not the sort of mirrors that you normally get in prisons, which are like looking at your reflection in the back of a tablespoon, you know, they sort of distort. Yeah. And so, you know, for there's, there's a woman coming from the old Limerick who's been in the old Limerick for 18 years, and she will be going to the new Limerick. She won't have seen her full body reflected in a mirror in all that time, I think that'll be mind-blowing for some of those women. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that when they were taken over to, to the new prison, many of them burst into tears, you know, the, the sheer niceness of it. Yeah. And of course, you know, all these things, yes, there's lots of reasons, aren't there, why it's just the right thing to do and not to keep people in squalid Victorian sort of rat-infested cells, which is sort of quite obvious why we shouldn't be doing that. But you know, if if a prison service is there to exist to turn people's lives around and to set them on the right path so that when they leave, they are positively contributing to their community, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out, does it, how maybe we should be treating them and and what they should be engaged in. And I know it jars with some people. It's sort of like, oh, how dare these people get anything nice? And it's like, well, you have to ask yourself the question, don't you? How do you want these people to be when they come out? And if the answer is better than when they went in and less likely to commit a crime, but we have to treat them humanely and that's the right and proper thing to do. Notwithstanding the fact that these are places of work and the staff deserve to work somewhere that's nice and less violent and less squalid. And I always find it weird that people don't sort of Maybe it's because most people don't go into prisons and don't know the reality, right? But it's it always amazes me, some people's views on these things. Yeah, and I also think with staff, if they're working in a place that is full of razor wire and security cameras and cages and, you know, all the paraphernalia of hard security, that's bound to affect the way that they view people, you know, the view the people in their care. Whereas... If it's, you know, a kind of normal, normalised environment, it's going to make them sort of react more positively to the people in their care and, and see them more as people. I mean, that's that's always the message that I give to architects. And again, it comes from Maggie Centres. The, the original sort of rationale behind Maggie's was let's treat people like people rather than patients. And I always say to prison architects, can you design something for people rather than prisoners? And, you know, that that's a, a sort of tricky mindset for some of them to, to get their head around. And one thing I always say to them is design a space, imagining that you're designing it for a female relative of yours. You know, imagine uh, your sister or daughter or niece ending up in prison. Design something that you know would mean that she would not only be treated decently and, and would be secure and safe, but she would actually be allowed to flourish. And... Some of them really struggle with that, you know, because they've never thought about that. You know, they, they just see see it in very sort of black and white them and us terms. It has never occurred to them that someone they know could end up in the prison that they're designing. Yeah, a powerful exercise for people. And how does Limerick compare, for example, to maybe a project you've worked on in a different country? I don't know about your work in New Zealand or is there an equivalent Limerick project that had differences or maybe the secure school in Kent that you mentioned? 
The Secure School is is still quite early in its development, but the other really big project I worked on, which isn't directly comparable, is a maximum security men's prison in New Zealand. But what I would say is that um, that was a really steep learning curve for me because I was working with a really good team and we were all on the same page. We all wanted to, to create a maximum security environment that would have a lot of the design cues that ended up in Limerick. So it would be a very humane, progressive, imaginative place. And we thought the Department of Corrections in New Zealand were on board with that. And we designed something pretty spectacular. And then when they saw it, they were shocked and they basically ran away screaming. You know, it wasn't what they wanted. They thought they wanted it. But when they saw it on paper, they realised that what they actually wanted was a newer, shinier version of the Supermax they already had. The comparison there would be that the Department of Corrections really played it safe and I think went totally down the wrong route. They have now got an American-style supermax, which is not going to rehabilitate anybody. The Irish Prison Service, as I say, were very open-minded. The governor of Limerick, uh, I remember at one meeting, said... I want people from Scandinavia to come over and see Limerick Prison. You know, I want them to come oh, over yeah. and, and be inspired by what we're doing. And I think I think that's already happening, actually, to some extent. I mean, the, the most direct comparison is with England and Wales and the, the extension to the female estate that is being planned and constructed at the moment. I haven't had a huge amount to do, to do with it. I, I worked with a construction company on their bid, so I helped them to get the contract. I'm often used in this way, I think, as a bit of sort of academic gloss and to enable them to say the right things about rehabilitation. The problem they've got is really the Ministry of Justice, who are very conservative. So the template that the ministry gave to the architects, there's very little deviation allowed. And they're essentially H-blocks with hardly any space in between for any kind of landscaping. They're kind of straight out of the 1970s. And I think it's a huge missed opportunity. Uh, The fact that we're building 500 new places for women is a travesty. I mean, it's just so unnecessary. It's so unnecessary and so ludicrous and flies in the face of the government's own strategy, which which is also an interesting point. Mm -hmm. And, And it's going to do untold harm to not only the women that end up there, but their families. You know, the, the ripple effect is is huge. So, yeah, we're not very enlightened. And, you know, I think this is all very ethically murky. I, I have huge feelings of moral ambiguity about prisons like Limerick because I'd rather we weren't building prisons for women at all. And I think it's quite likely that Limerick will become overcrowded because Ireland's sentencing policies are... Um, severe and they keep filling their prisons up so I don't know what's going to happen there but you know I would rather we weren't building prisons I would rather we were doing something like Hope Hope Street and and diverting women away from the criminal justice system and also I think it's a bit ethically dubious to be designing prisons that are nice environments I don't believe that women will go on to commit more crimes to get back into prison. But, you know, the idea that it might be the nicest environment that they've ever lived in is, you know, it's a huge social issue that we we really should be addressing that rather than building new prison places. It feels intractable. It feels unsolvable at the moment. It does. I mean, you know, I'm obviously always banging on about the women who are remanded into custody in England and Wales. A lot of women 
get sent to prison because they are homeless, so they can't get a community sentence or their abusers in their home. So a magistrate quite rightly says, show me the safe place that I can send this woman and I'll send her. But that place doesn't exist. So they get up tariffed prison. And then, of course, you've got the big chunk of women in prison who are eligible for early release currently, but they have no safe accommodation to go to. So there's a real question mark around how many women are being held in prison beyond their sentence ending. Of course, trying to get the data on that is difficult and sketchy, and um, but it's something I'm working on. And, you know, it's my view that if you manage to remove those women from prison who should not be there, so it's not controversial and isn't making anyone less safe at all, you actually reduce the number of women in prison, certainly in this country, by a good few hundred. And of course, an average women's prison in this country is a few hundred. So you could very quickly close a prison. But yet, the government, in their wisdom, are just going to build more places, which makes no sense at all. You're far too logical, Edwina. I mean, the (laughs) fact that we're still imprisoning women for shoplifting and TV license evasion and, you know, those kinds of crimes is tragic. Can you point to any research, either your own or anyone else's, that actually looks at the effectiveness of, because obviously we've got an evaluation running alongside Hope Street that will look at Hope Street specifically, but when it comes to nicer, better designed prisons, if there are any listeners interested in sort of looking at that? I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work in this area and I've published quite a lot. One of the problems is that it's really difficult to sort of extract architecture from everything else, all the other factors that are going on. So if someone is in what we might consider a superficially nice prison and somehow they're rehabilitated or, you know, they, they, they find new meaning in their lives, they become future orientated, it's very difficult to pinpoint that as being about environment. I think a beautiful environment can give people aspirations uh, in their own lives. But, you know, there are very many, I think, probably more important things. I mean, all the research suggests that relationships between prisoners and staff are the most fundamental factor in ensuring the success of a prison across the whole range of outcomes. Well, no, you know, I would argue that environment has a part to play there as well. But, you know, it's, it's again, it's quite difficult to sort of certainly provide quantitative data on that. There is a lot of research on the importance of green space, sort of uh, views of nature as well as access to, to nature. My colleague at the University of Birmingham, Dominique Moran, has, has done a lot of work in that area. Uh, so there's kind of hard evidence which the Ministry of Justice and, and other government agencies like to see. But, you know, on the whole, I tend to think that if we're going to build prisons, we should design them in a way that feels progressive because it's just the right thing to do. As you said, you know, locking people up in rat-infested, gloomy, damp, drafty, horrible cells, you know, that have been in use for 200 years. It's it's just not right. It's wrong on every single level. You just reminded me of a time actually when you were talking about access to nature and how you sort of, you know, bring that in and sort of make people feel that. Because of course, when people are in concrete prisons, devoid of all greenery, it matters them. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with a man in a CSU, a close supervision unit in a high security prison. And I was talking to him about the environment and, you know, we were just having a chat. And he said, you know, when it gets that season when people are cutting the grass, he said, we all go absolutely mad. He said, it's the the smell of the cut grass 
you know, and he was sort of trying to lobby the staff to get just a square of turf to sit on because their exercise yards, of course, in the CSUs, which are prisons within the prison, are concrete sort of, you know, tarmacky cage, as you know, sort of wire at the top, wire down the sides um, and nothing really in them. So they can literally just walk in circles, can't they? And all he wanted was a little patch of turf so that he could sit on it and just touch the grass. And he broke my heart. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember saying to a member of staff, would that be so difficult? Would that really, because con- everything I said, like pot plants, no, they'll hit each other on the head with them. Oh, what about this? No, you can't do that because they'll do this. And I was like, okay, turf. What are they going to do with the turf? <laughs> anyway, it was the computer says no sort of mentality. And, and I just sort of thought, how sad. I, I've got lots of stories like that, even at Halden Prison in Norway, which is the, the prison that's always held up around the world as the model prison. And it does have lots of green space and it's built into a forest. So the forest encroaches uh, within the wall as well. Um, All the sort of lower branches are taken off the trees so that it's not a security risk. I had a prisoner there who I interviewed who told me with great intensity the story of a pink rhododendron that was growing outside his cell window. And he looked quite sort of sheepish when he told me about it. He felt silly telling me about how important it was. But he said, it might be a stupid thing to say, but this spring when it started to blossom, that was an immense feeling because I have several rhododendrons around my own garden and being able to watch it grow and blossom, it was like being home. And the sense of homesickness in that little story was so palpable to me. You, you, you know, when, when you haven't served a prison sentence, you can't really grasp how important such tiny little things are. The smell of grass, feeling grass under your feet, a rhododendron growing outside your window, the sound of a bird outside your window. You know, they, they all take on momentous significance. Exactly. And, you know, we can all cast our minds back to um, to COVID, can't we, when even when we were told to stay in our own homes, and many of us have homes we like and like to be in, not all of us, of course, but that feeling of sort of being trapped. And actually, it wasn't enough because I, funnily enough, um, I went to Halden a long time ago, and I was probably in my early 20s, and I was talking to a man there, and I said, gosh, you know, it is quite nice, isn't it? And he looked at me very intensely, and he said, I still don't have my freedom. And I nearly kicked myself because it was a sort of, such an obvious thing in a way, you know, even if we were shut in our houses with our families, with all our creature comforts, to have your liberty removed is actually something so big and profound that actually it doesn't matter where you are. And you might have the most expensive wallpaper, lovely interiors. It doesn't matter if you don't have your freedom and if you're going to be sat there for 20 years. Absolutely. That's the lesson that all my research over the years has taught me, that the loss of liberty is everything. You know, that is the pain of imprisonment. And the guys at Halden would say to me, we do appreciate the architecture and, you know, and the gardens and so on. But actually, ultimately, we we can't ring our children whenever we want to. You know, the... the um, Regulations around phone calls in in Norway are quite draconian. And, you know, they say we can't just walk out of the door at five o'clock. And that's the the real 
pain to them. That's the real loss. I wonder whether the men there actually get rather annoyed with people sort of skipping over from other countries going, oh, this is amazing, isn't it? And they're like, well, I miss my children. I'm serving this sentence. I'm not getting out for however many, you know. I remember a man there said to me, I know that on the outside they call it Hotel Halden, but it's not a hotel. It's a prison. And he kept saying that. It's a prison. (laughs) And also, you know, you're living amongst people not of your choosing. I mean, it's Halden has got sort of Again, to an outsider, they look very nice. It looks like something out of an IKEA showroom. You know, they have these accommodation units, you'll remember, uh, which are shared sort of eight to 12 men. And, you know, there's a, a sort of nice kitchen with an island in the middle and a sort of nice stainless steel dishwasher in it. And then you've got uh, a living area just to the side with a TV and a sofa. And there's a dining table. And it all looks quite unprison-like. And they've got a family house there as well, of course, so that prisoners can invite their partners and children to stay with them overnight. All that is really progressive. But, you know, whatever you've done, whatever offence you've committed, you can quite often justify because you have to in order to live with yourself. But all the guys that you're living with, you know, they're all high-security prisoners. And, you know, some of them will have done some pretty nasty things. And actually, I think, Living in a place like Halden can be quite a frightening experience. And also, certainly last time I was there, 39% of prisoners were foreign nationals, and a lot of them didn't speak English or Norwegian. And that's a very lonely experience. You know, if you're living on a, a housing unit with nine or 10 other guys who are speaking a different language to you, and you can't call home because uh, all phone calls are monitored in Norway. So if you don't speak Norwegian or English, you can't make phone calls. So one man I interviewed just sat there, a young man, he'd been in Halden for four years, and he cried for an hour in front of me because he hadn't been able to speak to his mum in Istanbul in all that time because there were no officers that spoke Turkish that could monitor his phone call. So it's it's never as nice and easy as it looks on the surface. It's incredibly complicated, isn't it? And there's so many different factors, this sort of matrix of all these different things coming together. But I think we can certainly agree, can't we, that the the right way to do things is to build buildings that will be there for a long time, that are sort of sustainable, if possible, with the sort of environmental credentials, um, you know, places that will aid people's healing, nice places to work. But listen, it's been so interesting talking to you. Thank you so much. And I'll make sure that in the podcast notes, if anybody's interested in learning more about your work, that the the links will be there for people to have a look at. Perfect. That'd be great. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.